Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 245, The Romanov Children, Part 1. Moving away from the Russo-Turkish Wars, I wanted to cover a topic that I had never touched on during the past 12 years on this platform, and that is, it's about the children of the last Russian Tsar, Nicholas II. My sources for today's episode are The Romanovs, The Final Chapter by Robert Massey, The Romanovs, Ruling Russia, 1613-1917 to 1917, by Lindsay Hughes, and finally, The Romanov Sisters, The Lost Lives of the Daughters of Nicholas and Alexandra, by Helen Rappaport. Nicholas and Alexandra Romanov, the Tsar and Tsarina of Russia, would have five children four girls, and one boy. They were named Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia, and Alexei, and were born in that order. Their lives were filled with the trappings of royalty, yet ended in the most horrific manner. Today's goal is not to dwell on their murders, but on their lives, loves, concerns, and feelings. And we really have the most information about the girls, as Alexei was only 13 when he was killed. To better understand the children, you need to know more about the parents. Now, obviously, I've already covered Tsar Nicholas II, commenting on how he was ill-suited to be a leader of any country, much less one as vast as Russia. As a parent, though, he was deeply devoted to his children. The mother, born Alex of Hesse and Byrhine, granddaughter of Queen Victoria of England, was a daughter of a minor Grand Duke, but she also had a very traumatic childhood. The initial shock that hit Alex's family was one that would haunt the future Zarina for the rest of her life. Her brother, known as Freddy, died from a fall from a window. It was about 20 feet or 6 meters off the ground, and the fall alone was obviously a contributing factor to his death, but it was his hemophilia that closed the deal. It was an inherited disorder, traced to Queen Victoria and her son, Leopold, who died at the age of 30 from the disease. The future Alexandra Fyodorovna would give birth to a child, Alexei, who would have hemophilia himself, leading to one of the crises that toppled the Romanov dynasty. The next tragedy to hit Alex was in November 1878, when a diphtheria epidemic hit the family. All of the children were infected, but all survived except Alex's favorite little sister, May. She would die on the 16th of November at the age of three. It would get far worse as on December 14th, Alex's mother, Alice, would succumb to the disease. It was more than a six-year-old child should ever have to handle. Alex would go from a happy-go-lucky girl to a morose, serious child. It would follow her throughout the rest of her life. Now it's time to move forward and begin our discussion of the Romanov children with the firstborn, Olga. Grand Duchess Olga Nikolaevna Romanovna was born on November 15, 1895, at the Alexander Palace in Sarskoye Selo. 
It was one year and a day after the rushed wedding between Nicholas and Alexandra due to the death of Tsar Alexander III on November 1st, 1894. Olga's birth was not an easy one. Her mother was in labor for 20 hours. Her birth weight of 10 pounds, or 4.5 kilograms, along with her mother's weak constitution, added to the difficulties. Her parents had so wanted a boy that they had already named him Paul, which irked Nicholas's mother, Maria Fyodorovna, as it was the name of the murdered Tsar Paul I. While they were hoping for a son, they were just thrilled with a girl. Nicholas was said to have told the court chamberlain, quote, I'm glad that our child is a girl. Had it been a boy, he would belong to the people. Being a girl, she belongs to us. This was not the case within the extended Romanov family, as Grand Duchess Xenia, the daughter of Alexander III, was quoted as saying, A great joy, although it's a pity that's not a son. Right away, the courts of Europe were busy with discussions on who would marry the young child, and how it would lead to political rapprochements, especially between England and Russia. They had been on poor terms after the Crimean War of 1853 to 1856. A marriage between the royal families would create a new alliance, especially with Germany's rise in power. On November 27, 1895, Olga was christened at the Church of the Resurrection, but her parents were not present, as was the custom of the day in the Russian Orthodox Church. Her grandmother, Dowager Empress Maria, presided over the ceremonies. Alexandra had taken to motherhood with great joy and energy, going so far as to attempt to breastfeed Olga, which was almost unheard of by royal parents throughout Europe. Wet nurses were called in when the baby would not take Alexandra's breast milk. In 1896, a trip was scheduled for the royal family to see her for Olga's grandmother, or godmother, and Alexander's grandmother, Queen Victoria. There were hints of plots to assassinate the Russians, which led to heightened security. So instead of meeting the Queen in London, they went to Scotland instead, staying at Balmoral Castle. The media scrutiny and the public's desire to know more about the royal couple and their daughter, Olga, were to follow all of Tsar and Tsarina's daughters. As author Helen Rappaport said in her book, The Romanov Sisters, quote, They were the Princess Dianas of the day, perhaps the most photographed and talked about young royals of the early 20th century. Traveling through France next, it became apparent that something up was, was up with Alexandra. She was pregnant yet again. This time, she was laid up in bed for seven weeks after the royal family returned from Darmstadt to their palace at Sarskoi Selo. On June 10th, 1897, a second child was born, a girl named Tatiana. It's said that when Alexandra woke up from the anesthesia, she broke out in tears and said, quote, My God, it is again a daughter. What will the nation say? What will the nation say? While Nicholas fully accepted the new baby girl, the Russian imperial family was most disappointed. 
They yearned for a male heir to the throne. The news media globally printed articles suggesting that the Tsar was deeply disappointed in not having a male child. So instead of publicly appearing and denying the allegations, the royal couple decided to isolate themselves from public view. It would not affect the Tsar's popularity at the time, but it would deepen the dislike of the Tsarina. This would continue in a downward spiral as the years went by. As Olga grew up, she would become entirely conversed in both Russian and, in a surprise to me, in English. Both Olga and Tatiana were the talk of the town as they grew up. Olga was considered temperamental and moody, while Tatiana was by many accounts the most beautiful and most unassuming. She disliked using her title of Grand Duchess, preferring people call her by her name, Tatiana Nikolaevna. In my research, I found out that Nicholas wanted to call his first two girls Olga and Tatiana because of the two sisters in the Alexander Pushkin story, Eugene Onegin. This rumor comes from the grandson of Nicholas I, Grand Duke Konstantin Konstantinovich. He wrote in his diary in 1897 about this. Olga and Tatiana would become almost inseparable. They were known as the big pair. While they had all the riches that come with being children of the rulers of the world's largest empire, they led a somewhat austere life in some respects. All of the Romanov children slept on a hard, army-like cot without a pillow and made to take cold baths every morning. This sounds a bit rough, but this is not surprising considering Nicholas's father, Alexander III, ran his household like a military operation. Still, let's not fool ourselves. The children of the Tsar had a far, far better life than the average Russian, even many in the upper classes. Much of the austerity that the royal couple put their children through was unknown to the general populace. What they mostly saw was the grandiose pomp and circumstance revolving around the family. On June 26, 1899, Nicholas II and Alexandra welcomed a third child into their family, a girl named Maria, named after her grandmother, the Dowager Empress. Speaking of whom, she was starting to get very unhappy with her daughter-in-law, keeping out of the public limelight. Maria Fedorovna believed that, as Rappaport writes, quote, an empress should be visible, performing her ceremonial duties. But Alexandra stubbornly refused to put herself or her children on show. Although she genuinely wished to play an active role in philanthropic work, as her mother, Alice, had done. The pressure to have a boy was increasing by the day. The girls, there were too many of them without a male heir, which started producing lots of advice from all sorts of sources. One was that, based on a Russian popular belief, that Nicholas should lie on the right side of his bed and the wife on the left side to create a greater chance of producing a boy. A Dr. Leopold Schenk, an Austrian embryologist, author of the book The Determination of Sex, became an advisor to the empress. He would recommend that Alexandra eat more meat, 
as males had more blood corpuscles than females. In October of 1900, Nicholas discovered that Alexandra was pregnant once again. Unfortunately, he would come down with a case of the flu, which at the time was life-threatening. Now, if you remember, Tsar Paul I had proclaimed that only a male child could succeed to the Russia's throne. Nicholas, feeling very ill, asked that a decree be written up, making Olga the heir if he were to die instead of giving the crown to his brother Michael. Now, this question came up on Facebook just this past week, and I was reluctant to answer it there until I recorded this episode, because the uh, questioner, one of the uh, Facebook fans, asked, what if Nicholas had you know, gone off and decided that uh, the ruling by Tsar Paul was null and void, and he had made one of his children the heir? Well, he did want to, and he could have, because he had the ultimate power. But it never came to be. In January of 1901, with the Empress pregnant, they received news that her grandmother, Queen Victoria, had died. Alexandra was forbidden to travel to the funeral, which greatly disappointed her. On June 19, 1901, the royal couple announced the birth of their fourth child, another girl, Anastasia. Anastasia Nikolaevna was described by many the following way, quote, She undoubtedly held the record for punishable deeds in her family. For a naughtiness, she was a true genius. The birth of yet another girl was said to have created a sense of melancholy in Alexandra. Desperate to find a way to bear Nicholas a boy, the Tsarina began to search for alternatives and they would come out of the woodwork. The first was a faith healer and mystic named Maitre Philippe. Many within the Russian aristocracy at the time became enamored of the occult, mysticism, and other supernatural phenomena. This would be the circumstances that would allow the so-called starets, Grigory Rasputin, to infiltrate the Romanov family years later. Rumors circulated that the lack of a male heir was God's punishment on Nicholas for the Kodinka tragedy of 1896, where thousands of people had been trampled to death during his coronation ceremony. The daughters, though, were not the targets of scorn. They were considered treasures of Russia throughout the world. The mystic Philippe went home to France, but not before he told Nicholas and Alexandra to ask for the intercession of St. Seraphim of Sarov if they wanted to have a son. The problem was there was no St. Seraphim at the time. After having a search done, they discovered a story about a monk at the Divevo Monastery at Sarov. The Russian Orthodox Metropolitan of Moscow was pretty much forced to make the late monk Seraphim a saint. According to Elizaveta Narishkina, a Russian nobleman, uh, court official and memorist to Tsarina Alexandra, the Tsarina pushed hardest for the ceremony to happen. In early 1904, it was apparent that Alexandra was pregnant once again. On August 12th, an 11 and a half pound boy was born. A 301 gun salute was blasted from the Peter and Paul Fortress in St. Petersburg 
to announce the birth of an heir to the Russian throne. This was as opposed to a 101-gun salute for the birth of his four sisters. The boy was named Alexei after the second Romanov Tsar, Alexei I, Peter the Great's father. Nicholas was infuriated with his ancestor, who ruled Russia between 1645 to 1676. He felt, I mean, he wasn't angered, but he was more infatuated with him. He felt that pious Alexei was the kind of ruler he wanted to be. In Nicholas's mind, it was also an affirmation of his divine right to rule the Russian Empire. Immediately, the Tsar revoked Grand Duke Mikhail's succession, something the younger brother of Nicholas had coveted. From now on, in accordance with the fundamental laws of the empire, the imperial title of heir Tsarevich and all the rights pertaining to it belong to our son, Alexei. One has to wonder, as I have many times in the past, if Tsar Paul had not put into irrevocable law that the only heir to the throne would be the firstborn son, would it have changed history and allowed Nicholas to remain a czar in some different role? Had there not been this pressure to birth what would become a very sickly boy, would the Romanov family been viewed differently? Alas, it may be a topic for a future podcast episode. So, and also another answer to the listener who posted on Facebook, Tsar Paul's rule was supposedly an irrevocable law, that it could never be changed. But we have to understand that the Tsar had supreme power, and if he wanted to revoke an irrevocable law, he likely would have had the opportunity to do so. Now, I'd like to divert to a different subject now that all of the children have been, and that is their bedrooms. You know, they've been born, so... It starts with a description from the 1934 uh, book, and it's also 16 years after their murder. Helen Rappaport writes, quote, Two flights of stone steps led up to the now deserted children's apartments, where once again the adored Alexei's large playroom dominated, full of wooden and mechanical toys, a music box that played them Marseillaise, picture books, boxes of bricks, board games, and his favorite ranks of toy-led soldiers. She further goes on to write, and this is based on what the uh, communists at the time, the Bolsheviks had represented about what they found uh, in 1934. Uh, Rappaport says, quote, The Zarevich's adjacent personal bathroom often made visitors gasp in sympathy. It was full of beastly surgical instruments the calipers and other encasements for the legs, arms, and body made of canvas and leather that had been used to support him when his attacks of bleeding had left him temporarily disabled. And this is 1934. The communists were now in full control, and they used this as propaganda. But the people, when they saw this, were gassed. They didn't know that the boy was in such bad shape. Now, when describing the girls' living quarters... Rappaport wrote the following. Their light and spacious bedrooms were furnished with simple ivory-painted and polished lemonwood furniture and English chintz fabric curtains. 
a stenciled frieze of pink roses and bronze butterflies above pink-colored wallpaper had been chosen by the youngest sisters, Maria and Anastasia. For Olga and Tatiana, the frieze was of flowers and brown dragonflies. On the girls' matching dressing tables, there was a scattering of boxes, jewelry cases, manicure sets, combs and brushes, just as they had left them. Alexei's birth was the most talked-about royal birth in more than a century. The Russian Empire was still considered a major power, although that would change in a year. The Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905 would prove disastrous to their reputation. Add to that the Russian Revolution of 1905, which was precipitated by the bloody Sunday massacre earlier in the year, that made all that glamour dissipate. The real issue that became apparent early on in Alexei's life was that he did inherit the bleeding disease, hemophilia. Alexandra was distraught when it showed up with his bleeding through the umbilical cord after it was cut two days after it was still bleeding. As Rappaport reported, weeping bitter tears, Alexandra had taken Maria's hand. If only I, you knew how fervently I prayed to God to protect my son from our inherited curse. She told her, already only too aware that the blight of hemophilia had indeed descended on them. While the immediate family knew of the diagnosis, it was to be kept from the Russian people. The life expectancy of a child in the early 1900s was only 13 years. If this was known, the revolution of 1917 might have come a lot earlier. Not from the Bolsheviks, though, but from the extended Romanov family. Alexandra became more and more withdrawn, which did nothing for her public image. On top of that, the life of the four Romanov sisters became more closely controlled. Again, the rules laid down by Tsar Paul I would put more and more pressure on the royal family. The world actually noticed this increased isolation. The Washington Post wrote an article entitled, Children Without a Smile along with photographs of them from the official album. They noted how they lived almost like prisoners, although prisoners within a palace. Crisis after crisis was now following the Tsar and his family. The Russo-Japanese War, the Russian Revolution of 1905, and the acceptance of a Duma that put everyone under increased pressure. In 1906, Prime Minister Stolepin missed being assassinated when a massive bomb exploded at his dacha. Two of his children were severely injured. His oldest, Natalia, was on the edge of life and death when a 37-year-old Starnik, Grigory Rasputin, would make his presence felt. Natalia strangely improved almost immediately after his visit which brought him to the attention of the extended family of the Romanovs. In mid-October 1906, Rasputin was to meet the royal family and children. This was to be the first meeting, but another one would take a while longer to occur. The girls were now growing up and were to be groomed to become future wives of other royal families within Europe. 
Tutors were brought in to help the girls get ready for their upcoming roles. The older girls, Olga and Tatiana, were now known as the big pair, while Maria and Anastasia were called the little pair. Each pair would share a room. Over the coming years, their lives would take on more serious roles as things in Russia were becoming more and more unstable. It would become even more complicated when the country entered World War I in 1914. But that is a story to be told next time. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time as I complete the series about the Romanov children leading up to their murders in 1918. So, until next time, Tastidanya Ispasiba Zavinya Manya. <laughs>